Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, it's a new year. Jimmy Shipley said that uh, he knows now why when you get older, uh, you don't want to take your Christmas decorations down. <clears throat> because time flies by so fast that it seems like a year passes by in just a week or two. <clears throat> and so why take them down? And that's true. <clears throat> And as I think of the New Year's, I think of the future. <clears throat> you know, if you look back one year ago, you wouldn't have known. None of us would have uh, anticipated what was going to happen this year. And uh, that's just the way it is. We don't know the future. <clears throat> but uh, how about if God revealed the future to you? Would you want to know it? I don't think I'd want to know it. <clears throat> but in the book of Daniel, what we have is God actually reveals the future to this man. And that is good news, bad news. Good news because it satisfies your curiosity. Bad news because once your curiosity is satisfied, uh, you wish you didn't know the future. So if you take your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to begin a study in the book of Daniel. I really don't know why anyone at First Baptist Church Dallas would want to be in any other Sunday school class uh, right now other than the President's class. <laughs> because this is going to be an exciting study. Now, when we look at the book of Daniel, you can find that in your Bible, it's the last of what we call the major prophets. It's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. When we look at the book of Daniel, we discover that Daniel is a combination of history and prophecy. Now, everybody is interested in the prophecy, but that only comes in the second half of the book. The history part of Daniel is chapters covers chapters 1 through 6, and then the prophecy chapters cover chapters 7 through 12. Now, the book of Daniel spans 70 years. In other words, when you go from chapter 1 to chapter 12, 70 years pass. So this is a chronicle of those 70 years, taking highlights. And in order to understand the book of Daniel, you need to understand a little bit of background. <clears throat> Israel at this point is divided into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom, very similar to the United States during the Civil War. The northern kingdom, just like during Civil War times, is very evil. <laughs> is that right? Or something like that. <laughs> and as a result, in 722 B.C., this powerful giant, which would be similar to the former Soviet Union, called Assyria, invades Israel, and literally just devastates the northern kingdom. Somehow the southern kingdom escapes, because Assyria is diverted and has to go off and fight another battle, and the southern kingdom escapes, but the southern kingdom is no more obedient to God than the northern kingdom. The people stop tithing, the people stop giving their devotion to the Lord, they stop sacrificing their best animals to the Lord, they give the Lord... Uh, one-eyed cows instead of two-eyed cows and cows that are in, you know, have imperfections and things like this. And so, about a hundred years later, actually it's in 605 BC, a new kingdom rises up called Babylon. And Babylon sweeps in and defeats the southern kingdom called Judah. And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1. And here's what it says. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's the king of the southern kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So you can write next to verse 1, 605 B.C. Now there's actually going to be three invasions of Judah, or Jerusalem, and this is the beginning of Judah's demise. Now notice it says that Nebuchadnezzar was the one who besieged Jerusalem. <clears throat> He's the king of Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar is not yet the king. In verse 1, even though it says Nebuchadnezzar is the king, he's not yet the king. His father reigns in Babylon. So why in the world would Daniel say that Nebuchadnezzar is the king? It's because Daniel is writing years later after this event takes place. It would be like us saying, President Bush graduated from Yale. And that's true, isn't it? But he wasn't president when he graduated from Yale. But we still say President Bush graduated from Yale. Nebuchadnezzar eventually becomes the king, and that's how Daniel describes him, because he lived during Nebuchadnezzar's time. And so, But he was the general, and his father actually was the king at the time of the invasion. Now, there were three results because of this invasion. The first result is uh, the embarrassment of the king of Judah. Look in verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his, that's Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And so what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar, and this is how they did it in those days, uh, invades the city, takes the king, puts him in chains, plays him out in front of all these people, embarrassing him in front of all these people, showing that he could not win the war for his people. And so the first thing is we have the embarrassment of King Jehoiakim. Now second of all, we have the spoils of battle. Look right there in the middle of verse 2. It says, The Lord not only gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, but look what else he gave. Some of the artifacts or articles of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar, which is Babylon, modern-day Iraq, to the house of his God, Marduk, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now these sacred articles were articles like cups and utensils that were used in the temple of God in Jerusalem. When Nebuchadnezzar invades, they become his, the spoils of battle, and he takes them and transfers them to Babylon and puts them in his own temple, the temple of Marduk. Now he does this, this is a very significant the taking of the king and the taking of the, and praising him publicly, and the taking of the articles of the temple and putting them in his own God's temple are significant to the people's minds in these days. It meant to the people that the Babylonian God, Marduk, was stronger than the Jewish God, Jehovah. Because if our God was stronger, guess what? We would have won the war, wouldn't we? But Marduk must be stronger because Nebuchadnezzar wins the war. But Daniel wants us to realize that that's really not the case. <clears throat> what appears on the surface is not the case because at the beginning of verse 2, look what it says. It says, 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. You see, this is the Lord's doing. It appears that Nebuchadnezzar is successful because his God is stronger, but in reality, our God's stronger, and he's the one that has arranged this whole thing. And he does it for a purpose. We don't understand why planes ran into the Twin Towers, and we think, What's, what in the world's happening? The world's going crazy. No, it's not. There are crazy people in the world, but God's the ones in control. And you may not understand that, and it may not look like that in the surface, but it's always the Lord in control. That's why we hold to what we call the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God indeed rules, not Marduk. Now there's a third result of this invasion. And this is the enlistment of Jewish young men into the Babylonian government. Or what we'll call assimilation of the best of the Jewish young men into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now look at verse 3. Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, in other words, the captives, and some of the king's descendants, that's Jehoiakim's descendants, and some of the nobles. And so he says, I want you to bring some of these children to me. Now the word children doesn't mean little children, it means teenagers, somewhere between the age of 15 and 19 years of age. And so there is a sense, there is a, uh, a chronological requirement. I want some people in my service, the first requirement is an age requirement, they need to be between 15 and 19 years of age, and they must be privileged. Notice he says the king's descendants and nobles. Then there's a physical requirement. Look at verse 4. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking. I want clean cut, all American men, young men, in my service. So I want you to search those out. Noble people and clean cut, good looking people. And then there's an intellectual requirement in verse 4. Look what it says. Gifted. I want young men who are gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand. I want people who can read a book. I want people who have common sense. I want young men who are quick studies. They don't have to be told something twice. They don't have to be shown something twice. They learn after the first exposure to whatever we want to show them. And so he's hunting for the cream of the crop. And he's going to assimilate them in the Babylonian culture, even though they're Jews, and he's going to use them for his service. Now, I want you to notice the method of the assimilation. The method of bringing them into the service. Now look at the end of verse 4. First there will be training. Now look what it says. talks about men quick of understanding who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. These young men, once they are brought to Babylon, are going to be taught 
And it says they're going to be taught the language of the Chaldeans. They're going to be taught the vocabulary of the Chaldeans, and they're going to be taught the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, notice the word Chaldeans. You might want to circle that word, because Chaldeans can mean one of two things. It can simply mean the people of Babylon, but I don't think it means that here. But it can mean that. Or it can refer to a special group of people that we knew and were introduced to a couple weeks ago called the wise men. The wise men were called Chaldeans. So, what the king wants to do is have these young men trained in the vocabulary of the wise men and have them trained in the literature of the wise men. And what's going to happen is that these young men are going to become his advisors, the next generation of advisors. Now, not only will there be training of these young men, there will be pampering of these young men. Look at verse 5. And the king appointed for them, these young men, number one, a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. In other words, they're going to be put on a special diet. They're going to be able to eat meals fit for a king. And this is an amazing thing. These young men are going to be pampered. And so he says, I want them to eat the same thing that's put in front of me each day. Now, wouldn't you like to have an assignment like that? I'd like a job like that, where you're going to eat meals fit for a king, so there's going to be pampering. And then look at this. It's going to be an apprenticeship. Look what it says right in the middle of verse 5. And three years of training for them. That's an apprenticeship. Today we still have apprenticeships, don't we? You know how long an apprenticeship usually lasts? Three years. Doesn't matter whether you're going to be a carpenter. You start off learning how what tools are rich, and you learn how to, you know, use a saw, and you're an entered apprentice. And then you get to the next stage. In the second year, you become a craftsman, and you actually might learn how to build some things. And then finally, you become the third year a master carpenter. And it's the same with all the trades. And, and these young men were going to train for three years. They were going to be apprenticed by wise men. They were going to be their assistants. And that's very important. That's why today we have seminaries and they last how long? Three years of the seminary. The disciples were with Jesus. Three years. They had an apprenticeship with Jesus for three years. And so that was the standard time for an apprenticeship, and they're going to be trained for three years, educated during that period of time. And what's the goal of all this? Look at the end of verse 5. So that at the end of that time, at the end of the three years, they might serve before the king. So the end result is so that they will be able to minister or work for like the President of the United States. They're not going to have any lonely jobs. Now, a lot of people were taken captive. A lot of Jewish boys were taken captive. Most of them were using picks and shovels. But these young men are going to serve in the White House. And they were recruited. And there were certain qualifications. Don't we see that same thing happening today? Isn't that what our Ivy League schools do? We're hunting for the brightest 
the cream of the crop, a lot of promises, they offer you scholarships, dining privileges. I remember a few years ago, several years ago now, I was uh, doing a, a, a tour of Princeton University, and there were all these young men who had been recruited by the university, and they were being offered, and this was the cream of the crop, and they were being offered all kinds of scholarships, they were going to get the best training that could be offered in the United States, and the thing that usually got the students to come to Princeton rather than Harvard or Yale were the eating clubs. You choose which eating club you want to belong to. Can you imagine that? And there are people that are waiters and they come with, you know, white tuxedos and they wait on you. And they say, Mr. Street, what would you like today? What kind of wine would you like today? And all I would know to say would be what? Thunderbird or something like that, right? Morgan David, I don't even know what to call him. Did you say man dog? I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so, uh, while the rest of the Jewish boys are slaves and laborers, these young men have been tapped for positions of privilege. Let me saw the movie Skulls, the first movie. Remember that? Did anybody see that movie? A couple of people saw it. Well, it's a good movie. The reason it's a good movie is because it's about students who go to Yale from privileged families, and at the senior year, they are attacked by an organization called the Skull. Also known as the Skull and Bone Society. President George Bush was a member of the Skull and Bone Society. Some of you may be members of the Skull and Bone Society. And if you weren't, that means you were privileged. And they were looking for only 15 candidates a year. All must be seniors, going into their senior year. And if you're tapped for that position, you have all kinds of privileges given to you. New cars, money, when you graduate, opportunities to work in the CIA or the President's Cabinet, all those kinds of things will eventually come to you. And so that's what we have. Now that's sort of the background. This is what's happening. There's an invasion. The chief of the eunuchs has been told to choose certain boys to be used for the king's service. Now, what makes this so interesting is this is all a fulfillment of a prophecy. Okay, now I want to show this to you. So keep your finger in Daniel, and I'd like you to move back a few books to Isaiah. Just go to your left till you find Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah chapter 39. Now, this prophecy is mentioned in a lot of different books of the Old Testament, but I'm showing you the one that's closest to the book of Daniel, just so you can turn there easily. And it comes during the reign of King Hezekiah, and here's what it says. This is Isaiah chapter 39. And look at verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to where? Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and they shall take away, look at this, some of your sons who will descend from you, royalty, whom you beget, and they shall be eunuchs 
in the palace of the king of Babylon. And sure enough, eventually that happens, and it's fulfilled in Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, are a fulfillment of prophecy. So go back to Daniel chapter 1. So that's just a little interesting tidbit. Now we're going to be introduced to the recruits. Okay, let's see who's recruited. Look at verse 6. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 6. Now, among those of the sons of Judah, notice the phrase, among those, there are a lot of them. A lot of them were attacked. But we're going to be introduced to four of them. Were Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, Hananiah, who means God is a God of grace, Mishael, means who is like unto the Lord, and Azariah, which means God is my help. Now notice that these boys have Jewish names, and each one of their Jewish names is significant, and it means something. Each one is connected to the one true and living God, Jehovah. Verse 7, to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He's going to give them Babylonian names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. Hananiah, his name was Shadrach. To Mishael, his Babylonian name, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now each one of those names is connected to a Babylonian God. For example, Belteshazzar means Bel protects. And they had a God named Bel. And they had a whole mythology around the God Bel who fought a dragon. And so that means Bel protects. And the next name in that list in verse 7, actually the third name, um, Meshach, that means who's like Aku, that's another Babylon god. Who's like Aku? And he was the god of the moon. And so each Jewish boy was given a Babylonian name. So they're going to be given a Babylonian education. They're going to be eating Babylonian delicacies. And they'll be given a Babylonian name. And they're being assimilated into the culture. Now look at verse 8. But Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Now, it's interesting because verse 8, that verse that we just read, is the pivot verse of chapter 1. Daniel purposes in his heart that he's not going to eat the king's food, nor is he going to drink the king's wine. I mean, what I would consider the best part of the deal, eating like a king, he says he won't do that. He'll take the name, he'll get the education, but he won't eat the king's food. No, why not? If it were me, I'd say, bring on the bacon, wouldn't you? Oh, where is it? But see, he's Jewish. And why won't he eat the king's food? I believe it's because God gave the law in Leviticus 11 that simply said, there are certain foods that you cannot eat. If you eat those foods, you will become unclean and you will defile yourself before the one true and living God. 
And so based on the law, Daniel says, I cannot eat the food. It's not kosher. I'll become defiled. And he couldn't drink the wine because there was a god of wine that the Babylonians worshipped and the wine was offered first to the idol, dedicated to the idol. And Daniel knew that that would be idolatry, drinking that wine, so he refuses to do that. Now notice the phrase in verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart. That's very important. Because here we get an insight how Daniel faced a very delicate moral dilemma. And also, we discover guidance for how we can face matters of conscience. Because to drink the wine and eat the food would have been against his conscience and against the law. How did he handle it? We're going to find out how we can also handle matters of conscience. Now, what could have Daniel done had he chosen? Now, just think about this. Put yourself in Daniel's shoes. What would have been his options? What would have been your options? He could have said, well, this is a, such a small matter, you know, just eating a piece of bacon and drinking a little bit of wine. Oh, hello, buddy. Could have done that, couldn't he? It says he purposed in his heart that he wouldn't do that. He had convictions up front. So that when he was tempted, because I know he was tempted to do it. But he had settled these matters beforehand so that when he was tempted, he wouldn't get in. And he could have said, well, it's just a small matter. But, you know, if you give in to small matters, if you compromise in small things, one day you'll soon be compromising in bigger things, won't you? And if God can't trust you to do little things, and if you're not willing to do the little things like tithing and attending church, then God will never allow you to do great things for him. So, it's the little things that prepares for the big things. It's the little battles that we win that prepares for the big battles that one day we will face. And so that was one option. Let me hear another option. He could have said, and maybe you've said this, well, I'm not in Israel anymore. I'm in Babylon. Or to put it this way, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. No one's going to know about it. He could have done that. Couldn't have. You know the most dangerous place to be is to be away from home. When no one's looking at you. He could have said no one will know it. I'm in Babylon now. The most dangerous place to be is in college. Or in a hotel room. Or in a strange city, isn't it? That's when the temptations come. But Daniel doesn't do that. It says he purposed in his heart that he would not do that. He had convictions beforehand. Now, another thing that he could have done is he could have said, well, I don't want to insult the king. I mean, after all, he's giving me all these advantages. Look at the other guys. They're, they're using pick and shovels. <laughs> I mean, he's doing everything for us. And so in this situation, I think I'll just give in and drink the king's wine and eat the king's food, see? And that's just situational ethics. So you look at your situation and you determine your, your ethics and your decisions based on the situation. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. And then another thing I was thinking about when I was reading this 
is that he could have said this. You know, if I disobey the king now, I'm going to be kicked out of the program and I won't have any influence. So in order for me to have influence on this king and this government, I better stay with the program. In other words, the end justifies the means. See, now Daniel could have done all those things. And those are the exact same temptations that we're faced with every day. But he doesn't, and the secret is that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. That was his secret of success. He had convictions beforehand. These were settled issues. Now notice how he handles the situation. Now we're going to discover how to do it. Very interesting. First of all, he approaches those over him with respect. Look at verse 8. Therefore, based on his convictions, he requested of the chief of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Notice that. He makes a request. He goes to the person who has the authority and he makes the request. He doesn't march in mad. He doesn't uh, make a demand. He doesn't threaten to quit. He doesn't say, if you don't give me my way, I'm going to punch you in the nose. He doesn't do any of that. He makes the request. He's not angry. He gives his reasons. He says, you know, according to my religion, if I do this, I'm going to defile myself. See, there's a reason there that he might not defile himself. And he says, will you do that? Will you allow me not to have to do that? So he just makes a request. Now, that's the best way to handle a situation. Now look at verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now here's the second time God's mentioned. God's in control of every situation, isn't he? And he gives Daniel favor with this man. And it shows us something that God's not only concerned with governments, he's concerned with individuals. And God's concerned with you, even in these little matters. Now look at the chief of the eunuchs' response. Look at verse 10. Now the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? In other words, they're going to be eating all this good food, they're going to look healthy, and you're going to look sick. Then you would endanger my head before the king. Now, I think it's very interesting. In verse 9 it says that God gave Daniel favor with this man, but guess what? The man rejects his request. We always think that when God gives us favor with someone, they're going to be on our side, don't we? But what this means is that the man listened to Daniel very cordially. He said, but you know something? I just can't grant that request because if I don't, the king finds out that I allowed you not to eat this food and you end up looking bad, not as healthy as the other guys, he's going to have my head and I'm going to lose my job. And so this man responds in fear to his boss. Now isn't that interesting that you can see the two ways these men approach, the two different ways these men approach the problem. Daniel walks in by faith does what's right trust the Lord to work things out this man operates and recoils operates on fear and he recoils back in fear for fear of death 
So one's afraid of death and the other's not. Daniel puts his own life on the line. He goes in. And the man says, well, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I might lose my job or, in fact, I might lose my head. So Daniel stops and he says, I knew that was going to happen. You old hypocrite, I thought you were my friend. Know what he said? Huh? <laughs> Got mad, cursed, spit, stopped out, right? No, he didn't do that. So what happens when you go to a higher level person than yourself and you ask for a question, they would say, deny it. Then what do you do? Well, there's a second step. He takes an alternate plan. That's very interesting. Look what it says. An alternate plan. I like this. Look at verse 11. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the priests had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said this, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So what's he doing here? Well, when this man appeared, so I can't do it, he goes down to the next level. He moves down the chain of command. The ones that are all over him. The steward. And he says, how about just testing this out for 10 days? Let's just see if it works. And at the end of 10 days, if we look worse than the other guys, then you, know, you make a decision. But if we look fine, then you make a decision. Now, in the first situation, when he went to the head of the unit, he wanted a permanent solution. Just allow us not to do this. Exempt us from this. That didn't work. Alternate plan. Goes down the chain of command, asks for a temporary solution. How about a 10-day solution? Let's try a little 10-day test. See how we look. Now, I think that's, that's a brilliant scheme. And so look at the response. Verse 14. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacy. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And so with the temporary success comes the permanent solution. And so Daniel and his three friends will not have to eat the king's spirit or defile themselves with wine that's been offered to idols. Now notice in verse 8 it says Daniel purposed in his heart. Didn't say the other three guys did it. His three friends. Which shows us that Daniel is the leader. The others are followers. But they're good kids. And they follow their friend Daniel who has a conviction and they get in on the blessings. And they can be true to God. That's why it's very important to follow people who do right things. Now look at verse 17. Look at the results of following their, the results of following their convictions. Verse 17. First, the immediate results. As for these four young men, God, there's God again, used the third time, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Now that's a summary of their three-year apprenticeship. At the end of the three years, these guys, I mean, they know their book. 
And they know the theory and they know the application because God was with them. And look what else it says in verse 17. And Daniel, God gave him something special. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. While all of them could read the books and had common sense, God gave Daniel a supernatural ability to see things that ordinary people couldn't see and understand things that ordinary people could not understand. And in this book, we're going to see Daniel has encounters with angels that other people don't see. And Daniel can interpret the king's dreams that other people can't interpret. And what this verse means at the end of verse 17 is simply this, that God has chosen Daniel for a special purpose, and Daniel is a prophet. Daniel is a spokesman for God, and God speaks through Daniel, and Daniel is going to be the star of this book. Okay? The other guys, you know, they're like... Uh, you know, they're running for, uh, what is it called? Best supporting actors and actresses. But leading actor is Daniel, and God is going to make him a prophet. That's the immediate result. Look at the final result in verse 18. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said they should be brought in, that's the end of the three years, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them. So now they're going to have their final exam. They're going to have an interview with the king of the country. And he's going to determine whether they're going to serve in his court and what their appointments will be. Will they be given high offices or will they be given lower offices? Sort of like medical school. When you get finished, you apply to for internships to hospitals and guess what? The people with the best grades go to Johns Hopkins, don't they? And go to Indiana State in Houston. And then the rest go to so-and-so community hospital. And so this exam is going to determine their appointment. And look what happens in verse 19. He interviewed them, and among them all, maybe scores of young men. None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. They're the top in the class. And they are going to have the best position. And in all matters, matters of wisdom, verse 20, and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all of his realm. Now I think that's a hyperbole ten times because it just means when these three kids got finished, these four guys got finished their apprenticeship, they were smarter than these top advisors. They were smarter than Carl Rove. Amen. You know, and James Baker. And Dick Cheney. These were up and comers. They never, he'd never seen anybody like this. And the magicians were able to cast spells and so-called get information from beyond and supernatural information. And they sought guidance from the stars and they offered all this advice to the kings. And 
But when he examined them, they were ten times better. And why is it? Because in verse 17 it says, God gave them knowledge. See, this whole chapter is really about God, isn't it? It's God is superior to the gods of Babylon, although on the surface it looks like the gods of Babylon are superior to Jehovah. Because Babylon has defeated Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and all the southern kingdoms have been taken captivity. But friends, what appears on the surface is not always so. And God, indeed, is superior and he's in control. Look at verse 21. And thus Daniel, now this is a summary, watch this. Thus Daniel continued, meaning service before the king, until the first year of King Cyrus, which is 70 years later. Daniel serves through four administrations. And the last administration he serves under is the administration of King Cyrus, who, by the way, isn't even the king of Babylon, because at the end of the 70 years, a new world power has come on the scene called Persia, Persia invades Babylon and defeats it. And the king of Persia is Cyrus. And guess what happens? The one constant is Daniel. He's still in the White House. Still the chief advisor. Now that's an amazing thing, isn't it? <clears throat> and who is this guy, King Cyrus? Well, King Cyrus defeats Babylon. He's the man who says to the Jewish people, you've been held in captivity for 70 years. God has shown me something. King of Persia says this. God has shown me something. He wants me to send you back to your own country and build the temple of God once again. Now how in the world did God show King Cyrus to do that? Do you have any idea? Think maybe he had a good advisor? <laughs> he represented the true God in heaven? Yeah, it was David that influenced King Cyrus. And that opening chapter is written for that purpose. To say that Daniel, that Daniel is the key influence of all the kings for 70 years to come. And so we're going to see now how God uses Daniel to influence the kings of these foreign governments. Why? Because Daniel had purpose in his heart not to defile himself. If he would have given in to his temptation in verse 8, there wouldn't have been a verse 21. He wouldn't have been around for 70 years to influence these people on behalf of God because God would have put him aside. So let me give you two quick lessons. Number one, one we've mentioned already, when outwardly it looks like the enemy is winning, God is really in control. And that's a great thought, especially in this time of terrorism. And second of all, God has his people in high places to accomplish his will. You might not know they're there, but they are. And God is influencing his will upon the leaders of the world. Not only in America. We're talking about in Russia. We're talking about in Libya. We're talking about in Iraq. We're talking about in Iran, we're talking about in North Korea. You say, I can't believe it. If you would have told 
the people of Daniel's day, that God was influencing King Nebuchadnezzar, they would have laughed in your face. But guess what? God was working behind the scenes with a 20-year-old boy influencing the king of the most powerful empire in the world. So that's our first study in Daniel, and we're on our way to a very interesting study in this book that will eventually span not only 70 years, but the entire human civilization. Thank you. Study. May this be a, a study that's life-changing. May we have the veil uh, that rests between time and eternity pulled back. And may our eyes be opened to see how you work behind the scenes and that you indeed are the one true and living God and you're in control. And in, even when things look like they're in chaos and out of control, we have your word on it that you're working. Uh, for your good and your goal indeed will be accomplished. Help us to learn the lessons of this chapter. Help us, before we're ever tempted, to settle in our hearts certain uh, matters so that when, when we are tempted, we will have convictions and we won't be caught off guard, but we will, we will operate based on that set of principles that we've already settled and purposed in our hearts. Lord, help us to be like a Daniel and impact our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.